Oh my god, I've never asked this before, but please pray for Brazil. Isa, a Twitter user from Brazil, tweets out, Early exit polls were released. They suggested Bolsonaro would win an outright majority. Outside of Bolsonaro's house, his supporters were already cheering and singing the national anthem. After the final results came in, Bolsonaro won 48% of the votes, but not enough to get an outright majority. Fernando Haddad will be facing him in the runoffs. Leftists in Brazil breathed a sigh of relief, but the right wing claimed voter fraud and every conspiracy theory under the sun. Meanwhile, Americans who had just learned who Bolsonaro was started to opine on him. You are listening to Historically. This is a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in schools and on corporate media. My name is JD and this is my co-host Isha. Eu sou favorável à tortura, tu sabe disso. E o povo é favorável a isso também. Através do voto, você não vai mudar nada nesse país. Nada, absolutamente nada. Você só vai mudar... Infelizmente, quando um dia nós partimos para uma guerra civil aqui dentro. Né? E fazendo um trabalho que o regime militar não fez. Matamos 30 mil. Começando com o FHC. Não deixar para fora, não. Matando. Se vai morrer alguns inocentes, tudo What bem. you just heard was the Brazilian presidential candidate J.R. Bolsonaro coming out in favor of torture and saying that the military dictatorship killed too few people. Under the guise of corruption, the current party in charge, MDP, has been selectively targeting people from the Workers' Party. They impeached Dilma Rousseff on a accounting technicality, and they also charged Lula da Silva with corruption. Although he's the most popular figure in Brazil, he is unable to run, and he is also in prison under solitary confinement, and they won't let the press talk to him. And basically, they seem to have neutralized the opposition. With the Workers' Party hobbled, it seems like many in Brazil have chosen Social Democratic Party, which is Bolsonaro's party. Today, Wendy Muth joins us to talk about the political situation in Brazil and how it fits in a historical manner. Hello, Wendy. Thank you for joining us. Who is Bolsonaro and why should we be concerned about his rise to power? So Bolsonaro himself uh, began as, and he's, he's been in office since the early 90s as a representative, a federal representative uh, for the state of Rio. And he switched parties several times, which is fairly normal in Brazil. A lot of political parties, sort of right-wing party. A lot of the things that he's advocated for has included increasing policing and basically giving them carte blanche to engage in all sorts of activities. He supports conservative economic reforms. He supports getting rid of protections of land in the Amazon, um, protections of land that was previously or that is technically considered the land of former slaves and indigenous peoples, et cetera, et cetera. So the list can go on and on and on in terms of the things that he's advocated for that are detrimental to a big chunk of the Brazilian population. But what I think is most fascinating about his 
position now as president is his rise. Um, I think that's where you can kind of really see the inner workings of what's been going on in Brazil and how a lot of that has been influenced by local oligarchs and by people abroad who are, have extremely corporate interests in mind. What we saw around 2013, for any of, one, any of you who may not remember, there were huge protests that were happening throughout Brazil. And they began technically as a protest against the increase of transportation fares. Those protests began from a left perspective, precisely because transportation in Brazil is fairly expensive. And for people who are poor and live in the outskirts of major cities or far out in those cities, um, they have to take several buses and trains just to get to their place of work, which is really expensive. So they had these protests and they were quickly co-opted by people who were sort of right-wing or right-leaning. You would see posters, for example, that were against the poor or against the black population. And it sort of became less a question of fighting for rights of the poor and then instead fighting against supposed government corruption. Um, it was a very generic sense of government corruption. So there was never anything specific that people would point to. They would just say, oh, this PT government, which at the time um, Dilma was in office, this PT government is corrupt. They've been in office too long. They just want to take our money and give it to poor people. So that's kind of the, the protest ended up. So in the, in the process of these protests, of course, there were major crackdowns. They, were, they started out that way, to be honest. There were crackdowns from the beginning when it was mainly just leftists in the street. Um, but there were also uh, segments of the, the protests that were affiliated with Black Bloc, which some of you may know about, sort of like a loosely sort of anarchic group, a lot of police infiltration, et cetera. They basically just break glass, break things, set things on fire. Um, and that then was responded to with police violence and policing against people who were just basic protesters that had nothing to do with that. In the process of, of the outgrowth of these, these protests came a deeply conservative movement uh, that, that had as a goal, at least, to impeach Dilma Rousseff. Um, there were people who were upset about her win over Ayasunu, who was a candidate from Minas Gerais, who was running for president. There were lots, he was conservative as well. Uh, there was there was a lot of suspicion about problems at the polls, suspicion about machines being manipulated in some way, and some had alleged that Dilma had somehow change the vote. Uh, so this became the impetus for a lot of people to go into the streets, at least people who were conservative leaning, to go into the streets. We saw at that time that even papers like the New York Times and The Guardian were sort of applauding or at least neutrally covering these protests as though it was just some uh, natural, you know, response to problems in the government as we see in the U.S. And even some people on the left assumed that as well, not really understanding the mechanisms behind what was going on and the basic details of what were happening, what was happening uh, behind the protests. And so in the process, there were lot, there was again sort of this um, reproduction of right-leaning rhetoric about PT governance, a lot of which relied on demonizing poor people, demonizing black people. And the protests at that time were predominantly white and predominantly middle to upper class in all of the cities, whether it was in a city that was predominantly black or not, you would see these protests and they would almost be entirely white um, and entirely middle and upper class. Out of these movements, they were pushing for can potential candidates who could take out Dilma Rousseff initially, hopefully in an election. Um, so they, again, they were pushing for people like Ayesu Neves, who got in trouble for corruption himself later on, um, for people like Fernando Hiki Cardoso, who was the former president of Brazil, who was sort of a lightweight, center-left-ish neoliberal uh, president shortly after the end of the dictatorship. But anyway, in that process, these protests gained more and more traction. Later on, it came out that these protests were funded and backed by several uh, U.S. 
firms, uh, U.S. consulting firms, including Madeleine Albright's, which is a bit something maybe we can talk about later. Um, but in with these groups, they were pushing for people like Bolsonaro to run for office. And he eventually went from kind of being a very controversial person, but who people knew about only from the negative things he said, to then being a presidential candidate. What was the interest of the U.S. consultancy class in getting rid of the Dilma Rousseff? I mean, primarily, this is, again, my, my interpretation of it from what I understand. Um, people like Dilma and people who are part of PT, the Workers' Party, supported the public ownership, basically, of many resources, many of Brazilians, Brazil's resources. Uh, so a big one, for example, was Petrobras, which is the major oil and gas company in Brazil. And they're public, they're owned by the state. The people behind the scenes who were pushing for a removal of someone like Dilma wanted to privatize um, this particular resource because obviously it's incredibly lucrative. Um, and even documents came out after Dilma was impeached that showed tapes and, and documents showed that her vice president, Michelle Temer, who is conservative himself, um, had been sort of in cahoots with people who wanted to privatize all of these industries. The other thing, too, is that in Brazil, they had a fairly decent, especially for a country that itself was still in a position of development, a fairly decent social safety net. So they had retirement benefits. They have a public health program. They had programs like Bolsa Familia and uh, Fomizero, which are both housing and food programs for people who are poor. When I talk about the social safety net, the reason that becomes important is because those are, you know, public government managed, government funded programs, whereas the people who were called, you know, sort of uh, pushing for impeachment from the outside wanted to privatize those programs as well. So they wanted to see more private education. They want to see things like charter schools, which private health insurance now in Brazil. Uh, but they want to see a full, you know, kind of across the board implementation of private hospitals, private uh, medical insurance and the like. Yeah. And, and they want to just get rid of, you know, retirement benefits and things that are managed by the state. Because, again, if you put that in the market, people who are wealthy make more money. The main objective, as I said, has been Petrobras and also the Amazon, resources in the Amazon. Um, and it's kind of worth noting here, too, that Dilma herself uh, was not the best on the, the Amazon deforestation. And in fact, she she and PT contributed in, uh, in some degree to continual deforestation. But at the same time, she was sort of a, a stopgap measure in comparison to someone like uh, Bolsonaro, who wants to just like basically get rid of the entire Amazon, sell all of the wood, sell all of the resources. And as he said himself, basically get rid of, liquidate the indigenous population that lives on that land. Just to clarify, he did say exactly that. He called for genocide. Yeah. O afro-descendente, mais leve lá, pesava Eu acho que nem para procurador serve mais. Se eu chegar lá, o que depender de mim, todo cidadão vai ter uma arma de fogo dentro de casa. Não vai ter um centímetro demarcado para reserva indígena ou para quilombola. Comecem já ir se acostumando. What we just heard was Bolsonaro saying that everyone should take out their guns and that they're not giving the indigenous people even one centimeter of land. 
He also called the Quilombolas and the indigenous people lazy. And he said that they don't even procreate anymore. He himself was a military officer. Um, he was involved in the military in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was conservative then, as he is conservative now. Um, although he kind of, he got in trouble while he was in the military for kind of pushing for a movement to help military officers of his level have supposedly have more rights. And he ended up basically like blowing up a bathroom kind of at the time or attempting to blow up a bathroom and got in trouble for that. But he basically was just like a, a no-name officer. He was very conservative, but there wasn't anything in particular or special about him. But after he started to run for office, one of the things that he often did was, you know, he would praise the military dictatorship. He would praise the people who were engaged in torture. He would praise military officers who have well-documented evidence of violence against civilians, against women, against people who were pregnant, et cetera. So it's he, even though he himself was not of major importance at the time, he likes to look back on the period as though he was some sort of hero or some sort of major figure when he himself was just sort of a sycophant who was obsessed with those figures, but himself not very important. Let's go to the 70s and talk about how the Brazilian dictatorship was involved in Operation Condor and what they did. Yeah, so Operation Condor itself was sort of a CIA-based program that was anti-communist and they wanted to do basically everything they could to rid Latin America, which the U.S. saw as its backyard, basically, in terms of resources and social control. Um, they wanted to do what they could to basically get rid of any hint of left-leaning social activity or political activity, and that included people who were not exactly far left-leaning, hyper-communistic types. It was people who were sort of middle-of-the-road, soft, social politicians what the U.S. works toward training and providing sort of military backup and support governments who insisted on these means of controlling the population. In the Brazilian case in particular, um, during the dictatorship, the U.S. was often cited as sort of being out in the Atlantic waiting for things to happen. They did this at the beginning of the dictatorship and they would sort of pass by here and there throughout the dictatorship just to make sure in case Brazil needed additional backup even though its own military was fairly well-trained and well-supported on the ground and had arms, funds, torture centers, et cetera. It's not that they were lacking, I should say, for support. And in the case of the Brazilian case and specifically in the 70s, I mean, it's basically just referred to as a massive network of violence towards uh, left-leaning groups. So there were torture centers, for example, throughout Brazil. One of the most famous ones is actually uh, in Sao Paulo and run by a man that Bolsonaro himself often praises. And you would have people who were being disappeared or uh, being buried often in rural areas or parts of the outskirts of major cities where no one knew where they were. Um, there were people who were disappeared as whole families, people who were separated from their children, pregnant women who were tortured. So there were thousands of people who were sort of tied up in this process, lost. Uh, these numbers are kind of, they're always up for debate uh, because for people who are doing research on the dictatorship, there's some, sometimes there's still people who are listed as missing to this day. So there's no trace sometimes of people who were tortured and then their bodies were discarded of after the process. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's basically just the sort of network of torture and violence, daycare that was enacted on the population to keep people from protesting and pushing against the dictatorship that they saw as a complete removal of their basic rights. Did the military dictatorship enact austerity measures like they did in Pinochet's Chile? 
there was a there was austerity. It wasn't to the same degree as Pinochet, obviously. Um, but a lot of their a lot of the austerity that was imposed in Brazil, what they were able to do is sort of use it as a PR campaign. Um, so they often referred to this as sort of the the miracle of the military dictatorship. And so they actually saw a temporary moment um, of economic, um, I guess, increase or or positive economic growth at one point. But again, it was mainly because they were um, taking away from the population, freezing certain um, public programs, et cetera. But a lot of that, again, as I said, was it was sort of, um, it wasn't extreme of Pinochet by any means, but it was certainly used by the dictatorship to present itself as having saved the country from someone like Goulart, who was the president that they overthrew. So they had saved the country from what would have happened if a quote-unquote communist had remained in office. But it was mainly a PR campaign in the Brazilian case in large part. Who were the main resistance people? And were there, were they, of what happened to them. And wasn't Selma also one of the resistance people? Do you want to talk about what happened to her? Yeah, so it's kind of funny to have a question like that. It's a good question, no doubt. Um, but it's a funny one because to say in some ways who were the main resistance people, it's almost it's almost like answering the question of why is Bolsonaro bad? Um, because there are so many and there were so many that kind of grew up and uh, were offshoots of one another. So in the case of Jilma, or in, in the case of many, not just Jilma, but many people were involved in, in groups that were offshoots of um, sort of Marxist-Leninist groups um, in Brazil, some of which had ties even to Portugal and other parts of the Portuguese-speaking world. There was one that was called MR18, the Movimento Revolucionario, and there were others. She was part of MR18 as well. But there were others that, again, sort of were part of larger groups and that were part of somewhat less, far left-leaning protests um, that then broke off into smaller ones. They would have small fights, or some would be, for example, only specific regions of the country. Some were rural, some were urban. Um, and this is something that I go into a little bit when I talk to, I talked on my podcast about someone by the name of Carlos, Carlos Marighella, who was involved in far-left communist um, organizing in Brazil. But that was one. There were people who would do things like kidnap diplomats, not harm them, but just kidnap them. There were people who would engage in light acts of destruction of uh, public property or private property as well at times. There were bank robberies. There were there was a variety of, I guess you could say, like sort of subversive activity throughout the dictatorship. But it's hard to say specifically that there was, there was, for example, one specific group that was the big one, because it depends on if you're talking about major cities, or the rural areas that will. And sorry, just to go back a bit, um, in the case of Dilma, actually, she was part of Var Palmadis. I apologize. She wasn't part of MR8. I tend to get them mixed up because they had some overlap. Um, but she was part of Var Palmadis, which was a group of younger communist revolutionaries of sorts uh, who were involved in, in fighting against the dictatorship. And the case of Dilma, she herself, so it's interesting because when we talk about Dilma's um, involvement, sometimes I think her position within the group is sort of, I don't want to say exaggerated, but it's often discussed in a way that makes it seem like she was on the ground blowing stuff up all the time. And that wasn't actually the case. She was the treasurer of the group. And so while she was involved in some on the ground actions and like she wasn't of of the group, the most violent or the most outspoken necessarily, 
Um, she herself had come from kind of a middle class elite family. She wasn't involved in the same way that you saw other people getting involved on the ground. And in her case, she herself was also tortured rather brutally. There were several others who, as I mentioned before, were disappeared. Uh, there were people who were separated from their families for long periods of time, not no one would know where they were. Um, and in some cases, there were instances of rape of um, other forms. Of, there were several forms of physical torture that came out in the dictatorship that were very unique. And the other thing that's interesting about this particular form of violence that was committed against the population is that a lot of these methods were not just Brazilian-based. Some of them were being trained, as we've already talked about, by U.S. military officers. Some of the forms of torture were being or being implemented by by way of British intelligence officers of other European countries who were involved. So it's not. I think we often talk about sort of the U.S. being the sole, you know, person or sole sole country that was behind a lot of the things that were happening in Brazil during the dictatorship. And while it certainly was the most prominent and the one that gave the most funding and backing to the dictatorship and its regime. There were also other countries that were involved that were that were helping basically, helping, you know, in the process of committing these acts of violence. Um, I should mention also that there were, as I sort of hinted at this before, but there were groups that came out during the abertura to unions, which were basically banned uh, during the dictatorship. There were sort of um, proto-union style groups, especially with regards to the metal workers unions of the Southeast, which is what how Lula got his start as a political leader. There were also movements time, um, and there were also black movement groups that sort of re-emerged during this abertura. They had always, all of these groups had been operating informally during the dictatorship, but it's really in this period of the late 70s, early 80s primarily, that you start to see them be able to express themselves more formally without fear of hate repression. But that's not to say that they were in any way um, having it easy at that time either. Uh, can you go over like the racial dynamics? Like, like, was it mostly rich white people who supported the military dictatorships and the dissidents were people of color or what? Yeah, so that's a really good question, actually. During the dictatorship, they had basically, it's when you really start to see a full-on push of this idea of racial democracy, that, oh, Brazil is not racist, they don't have racism. It's when you start to see Brazilian tourist agencies pushing, for example, the idea of the multiracial woman who would, you know, samba and who was sexy, who was beautiful, et cetera. These images that come from the dictatorship are often the images that people continue to think of in the present when I bring up the word, when I say the word Brazil, right? So, oh, you know, samba, soccer, football, you know, right? mixed people, beautiful people. A lot of these images were sort of concretized, concretized during this time period. See, um, in terms of who supported the military dictatorship, it was a mix. It wasn't quite as racially bifurcated as you see now. In, in the beginning of the dictatorship, a lot of the the rhetoric was based on this idea of having a solid Christian family and going back to quote unquote family values. At that time, it was mainly Catholic led and not evangelical led as it is now. Views around race, there was mainly no real discussion of race. And those who were involved in these movements, again, depending on the region, tended to be white and middle class, uh, but not all of them. And certainly during the dictatorship, you know, you'll hear some people now talking about how, well, things weren't as bad for certain groups during the dictatorship because of the economic boom um, and things like that. But it's, it's, I, I don't want to say that it was all white. And it's also important to recognize, too, that the people, a lot of the people who opposed the military dictatorship were themselves from 
middle class and elite, sometimes uh, white families. So it was really a, a mix. It was not, I think, as clear cut as we see towards the, the 20, 2013 protests and the like, where you start to see this real racial division. But again, in major cities, what you see in poor neighborhoods that are predominantly Black at this time and, and today is that their understanding and their relationship with the state was always negative, right? There was rarely a period of time in which you would find a poor Black Brazilian who would say, yeah, the government is really good for me, better under left-leaning governments. There were some who would argue that for people who lived in the favelas, which are the poor slums in Brazilian cities, for them, the dictatorship never ended. And it was always sort of this continuation and phases of violence from the state, of deprivation from the state. And I think that that's important to keep in mind when we talk about sort of framing the dictatorship in these categories. It's important to remember that some, for some groups, there was really no beginning and end, no matter who was in charge uh, with regard to their conditions. Sorry, really quickly, I forgot to add that the other thing that, that comes up a lot, too, is that the dictatorship would use, for example, poor black and indigenous people as informants, um, and they would also use them as officers. So in some ways, the dictatorship kind of tried to mimic this idea of racial democracy in its ranks. And so you would have people, at least at the lower level, not, of course, not high ranking officers, but you would have people at the lower level, the ones who were inflicting the violence, the ones who were sort of controlling the population, they would often put people in those positions who themselves were and or black, uh, which would then leave the population again sort of um, in a state of confusion in terms of who who was on their side and who were their enemies. And in many of the documents that I go through for my own research, the people who are informants themselves have to be oftentimes black or, or poor in some cases to get into some of these, these groups and these organizations, because otherwise they would reveal, you know, that they weren't actual true members of the group. So it was a, a sort of form of cover for them as well. A Bolsonaro quote-unquote is running on the anti-quote-unquote crime uh, platform. So <clears throat> what does he mean by crime? And obviously he wants to tor torture and all that. So can you explain <laughs> the dynamic on what he means by crime? But what's interesting about Bolsonaro, one of, the, one of the key things about him that many people, I think, lose sight of is that he himself is not very specific. So what he does, and this is what several left commentators in Brazil have pointed out, is the fact that he kind of latches on to a general idea, right? So, for example, he himself is obsessed with pedophilia. He talks a lot about pedophilia. He talks a lot about rape, but in terms of punishing the rapist, not so much what happens to the survivor, but what can ha what should happen to the rapist in the end. Um, and he also talks a lot about crime. What people have commented on and noticed is that, for example, no one is going to say, oh, they're pro-crime or they're pro-rape or they're pro-pedophilia, right? I mean, at least someone who's thinking logically is not going to go out and say that. And it puts his opponents in the strange position because when you go against some of his plans to supposedly combat those who are guilty of these acts, so it's just kind of it's a rhetorical tool that that functions in his favor because the general population will say, oh yeah, of course I'm against rape, of course of course I'm against pedophilia, of course I'm against crime. For him though, what crime is sort of shorthand uh, for I, I would argue it has become shorthand for poverty. It has become shorthand for for being a person of color. It has even become shorthand in the case of his obsession with pedophilia. It has become a shorthand for for being gay or lesbian in this case, because often in, for people like Bolsonaro, they conflate pedophilia with being LGBT. One of the things that he's been harping on since his 
the beginning of his run is the idea that in certain Brazilian schools, there had been a discussion about whether or not they should talk about being or talk about the differences in sexual identities if if that's a valid way of discussing, you know, sexual development among young people and teenagers. And he kept talking about how there was this book that was pushing people to be gay, pushing kids in Brazil to be to be gay or trans. And he's like, he's obsessed with it and constantly talks about it. But it has become, again, a sort of distraction in, in, in the place of having an actual plan to combat what are cases of, for example, child sex abuse, or what are cases of physical violence against women, and which are cases of excessive homicide levels in poor communities in Brazil. And many of those are not just, of course, between civilians, but at the hands of the police. That kind of violence he doesn't want to talk about. So for him, violence, again, crime in particular, is a kind of shorthand that basically will allow people like him who believe, for example, that a, a good criminal is a dead criminal, which is something that he says often. For people like him, this is a way to kind of target a certain group of people who know that in the back of their minds, they, they don't like poor people, they don't like black people, but it's a way to get them on board with a sort of cover for what would otherwise be racism and classism. But suppose there was a President Bolsonaro, how would that affect Bolivia? Because Bolivia has Evo Morales, a good leftist government, and maybe Venezuela, what would we have to be in the lookout for? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And I think I, I would speak more to Venezuela because this is like super on, on a lot of people's minds, especially those who live in the northwest of the country, which borders Venezuela. So for those who have been kind of keeping up with what's happening, Brazil, for the most part, um, has throughout its history in the 20th century, at least had sort of an open immigration policy. It's not as strict as what we see in the U.S. And obviously not everyone and their mother can come, um, but in cases of state violence countries or in cases of starvation or political asylum, et cetera, whatever, uh, Brazil has been accepting people um, who, have, who have stated that they're in a position of uh, dire straits for whatever reason that may be. And this is not a necessarily even a, a discussion or reflection on the Venezuelan government and what's happening in Venezuela, but Brazil has basically recognized that there is a crisis and they've been accepting Venezuelan migrants to the country. I mean, obviously, part of that is, again, PR. It makes Temer look good, who is the president now that took over after Dilma's impeachment. Um, but it also is a sort of a, a diplomatic move that keeps Brazil in the good graces, I think, of the rest of Latin America, even though it's becoming increasingly right wing. And what they've seen is that there have been multiple acts of violence against uh, Venezuelans in the Northwest. There's also been an influx of Haitian migrants for similar reasons, obviously, of, you know, food shortage and state oppression and obviously disaster, natural disasters. They've had a large group of, a fairly sizable group of Haitians come in and they've been accepted, uh, but also had to deal with extreme cases of discrimination, acts of violence um, in that region. And we see a sort of tension, a type of tension that's been growing, much like what we see in border regions of the U.S. and in parts of Europe uh, when it comes to responses to immigrants. If someone like Bolsonaro becomes president, first of all, I think his, his first step, any sort of open migration um, of that sort of, of people who are declaring themselves as refugees to the country, we can sort of see hints towards this from Temer himself, who ended a lot of diplomatic relationships with other developing nations in, in the South-South exchanges that had been established under Lula and under Joma with countries in Africa and other parts of Latin. We can definitely see that, the continuation of, of ending those relationships. And I think in terms of Bolivia, you know, Bolivia at this point 
will be pretty much one of the only ones left uh, of Latin American countries that has left-wing leadership. We've seen Colombia, Honduras, Argentina all have now right-wing governments or right, just pretty expressively right-wing governments and have been oppressive towards their people. And I think if Brazil is added to that list, um, its relationship with Bolivia for sure will be, will be affected. It already has uh, with the ouster of Dilma, but I think it would be further, further destroyed um, and I think it'll be just one more example of action that began in the 80s and 90s as kind of on a road to to more social democratic governance and kind of reverting to a period of time in which uh, the country was isolated and, and politically right-leaning. Um, real quick, before we forget, you said you were on a podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Yeah, so I have a podcast uh, for, it's called The Left Pocket Project podcast. But again, because I'm in Mozambique with internet that doesn't behave well, um, I can't I can't do any interviews for obvious reasons. Uh, so right now it's on hiatus until I get back in December. Okay, I heard that the Silicon Valley uh, tech bros are kind of into Bolsonaro. How are they influencing uh-huh. that? And do we know how and what are they doing? Oh man, how much time do you have again? Um, (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. But in this case, it's so similar. In this case, I can actually make a comparison to the U.S. So if you remember, you know, sort of in the and the aftermath of what happened in the 2016 election, people set their sights on Facebook, primarily because of the assumption of Russian interference. But then it became this question of like, oh no, wait a second, like what else is Facebook doing, right? How was Facebook doing something that had nothing to do with the Russians and that on its own was affecting the election. And what came out of these investigations, at least insofar as what we we know, is that they were in, you know, they had a relationship that they formed with Cambridge Analytica and with several other groups that would allow them to basically use data of its users, of Facebook users, to push campaigns, push the campaign on them. So to push certain ads, arguably kind of a normal part of the process. We know that when we when we click the OK to become Facebook members. But I think in the case of the election, it was rather exacerbated um, further because groups like Cambridge Analytica were pushing, so putting so much money into the campaign process. What you see in Brazil right now is that, first of all, some, many have talked, started talking about this, but that we believe you know, people who've been following this, we believe uh, that Bannon is actually advising Bolsonaro, if not formally, at least informally. He's in advising his campaign. The second thing is that group Can I in, in Brazil. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, Bolsonaro's son tweeted out a picture of himself with Bannon. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> but for a while, it was sort of it was sort of un, it was unclear if they had actually established ties or not. So I didn't want to firmly say like they were they were definitely they had like a contract or something. Um, but they've been flirting with one another. Um, so yeah, it's good to know that now they're being very transparent. But in terms of the the digital side of things. In Brazil, Twitter is less popular than Facebook and WhatsApp. So for those of you who don't know what WhatsApp is, although probably everyone listening to this does, but it's sort of just like a, a, a digital communication program that's sort of like FaceTime or any or Skype. But people use it in Brazil like they would use Facebook or Twitter in that they have all these groups of their family, of their friends, etc. And they literally use this app to send news to one another. Again, like we use how we use Facebook. And what they've seen for the past few weeks is a massive increase of fake news regarding uh, Abaji, who's the PT candidate. Um, and there have been cases of fake news toward other candidates, but primarily towards Abaji. 
there have been, for example, allegations of, you know, corruption. There have been wild things that showed, for example, his his uh, vice presidential candidate, Manuela Davila, who is part of the Brazilian Communist Party, showing her wearing a shirt that she wasn't wearing. There are lots of things that kind of just like kind of seemingly innocuous stories, but that people are, I guess, as as the news increases, as the onslaught of this, of this fake uh, propaganda comes out more and more on these apps, because again, who has time to double check all this stuff? There's been such a large degree of it that who and what's not. The other thing that's important to point out here too is that in Brazil, you still, even though there are lots of people who are internet users and there are lots of people who who do have televisions and things like that, there is still not as much saturation of tech as you see in the United States. So for some people, their only access to to news and things like that on a regular basis at least might be their WhatsApp. So they're not going to go on Twitter. They're not going to watch several, even that's not so much better considering what I mentioned earlier about the media. Use WhatsApp as a sort of what they've seen is that there's kind of this correlation of sorts. This just came out Thursday. The Guardian said Bolsonaro's business backers accused of illegal WhatsApp fake news campaign. According to the allegation to the front page report by Folha de Sao Paulo, one of Brazil's leading newspapers, Bolsonaro has been getting an illegal helping hand from a group of Brazilian entrepreneurs who are bankrolling a WhatsApp campaign to bombard WhatsApp users with fake news about Haddad. And recently, Bolsonaro told the right-wing website O Antagonista, I can't control it if an entrepreneur who is friendly to me is doing this. I know it's against the law, but I can't control it. I have no way above knowing it and no way of taking measures to stop it. It seems most of the complaints about PT seem to be vague notions of corruption. How did the right wing weaponize corruption? And how do we stop the right wing here in the US from doing the same thing? Yeah, this is a really good question and one that people are still trying to answer in the aftermath of Sunday's first round of elections. My personal opinion and just from what I've seen in my own research is, and over time being in Brazil every year, is that there is still a concerted effort to demonize the poor and a predominant, you know, the, the poor in Brazil is predominantly of color, either black or indigenous. I think that it's easy to say, for example, that PT is corrupt and it's about anti-corruption and like sticking it to the man and all this stuff. But it's not quite like that. And I think a lot of people who engage in this process are conflating what happened in the U.S. with what happened in Brazil. I think they're trying to just copy paste what to a city that's familiar with. What's happening in Brazil, though, is that there's, as I said, over time, I mean, this is not new. There's always been a process to demonize the poor and to, to basically turn people who are of color and who are poor in Brazil into the internal enemy, right? So it's less about just xenophobia, but it's sort of an internalized xenophobia, if that makes sense. I, what I've seen in this election is, uh, in Brazil, you know, we ha they have the option to have a null vote. You don't have to vote for a candidate. If you don't like any of the candidates, you can hit null or leave your, leave your ballot blank. So that's an option in Brazil that we don't have in the U.S. And I think if one were true, they would do that. I think for those who are voting for Bolsonaro, part of it is just basic misinformation. There are some people who still don't know what he said or what he's done. Um, and they just see him as kind of an answer to, to PT. 
whose understanding of the understanding of which is also uh, the rhetoric that someone like Bolsonaro engages in for people who do know what he's about. I think they see him as as an alternative to what they've recognized over the past few years as supposedly like a fleecing of the middle class in the in the interests of poor people or black people who don't want to, who supposedly don't want to work or who want to get some sort of government benefit. It's much like what we saw in in this case in the US um in the eighties, there was a demonization of poor people like were who were called welfare queens and the like, that then pushed people to vote even against their own interests. Whenever I go to Brazil, I'm almost always in the South or the Southeast. Although there, there's certainly a, you know, sizable communities of color there, but it's predominantly white and it's predominantly wealthier, at least in terms of the state resources and the incomes that people have in comparison to the rest of the northern parts, in particular, of the country. And so you hear this kind of rhetoric in Isonaro. And the other problem, though, is that you have, because of the media influence, you have people who are themselves poor, who themselves are of color, who themselves, maybe women even, who are voting for this man because they see they've been told over and over and over that anything is better than PT. The idea of there's sort of a demonization of PT that's so strong in that region of Brazil. And if you look at the map, it's very clear, right? That they they just want they just want someone who's different. And I think unfortunately that idea of difference is an understanding of leadership that leadership must be white, it must be male, it must be macho, it must have a strong hand. And I think they were in some ways with PT, you know, they had this man who's from, who himself is from the Northeast, Lula's from the Northeast. He had a close relationship with people of color. He did a lot for poor people. So I think they see in some ways someone like Bolsonaro as a massive alternative, extreme alternative to what PT stood for fundamentally. And unfortunately, that in and of itself is a, is a kind of, it's a process that involves uh, racism, classism and sexism. The other thing that I just want to point out too, I'm sorry, I, I left on, I left out on this, uh, left off this point, but for those in Rio, Bolsonaro, I believe, got around 60%. He did very well in, in Rio, if I'm recalling the numbers correctly. I know he won, he won the state of Rio, but I don't remember the exact numbers, but I believe they were very high. And there's a huge population in Rio of people who are below the poverty line. But you see sometimes people voting for him who, who make up the demographic that he demonizes because there's an internal self-hatred happening. There's also a sense of desperation on their end as well, because they say, well, I'm still living in this state of violence. I'm still living in this condition. Maybe governance from PT didn't help. Maybe I should vote for someone else. And there's also an inevitable discussion that all of us need to really kind of wrap our heads around about the influence of the church. In places, especially poor neighborhoods in Rio and Sao Paulo, you see a massive influx of evangelical Christianity of a very conservative sort. And I say that because not all evangelicals are the same. And there's some evangelical groups that engage in a kind of liberation theology that would be completely against Bolsonaro. But a lot in Brazil believe that Bolsonaro is the best option for them. This is, I think, where why you have people of a variety of different ages, sexes, genders, races, and economic positions going to the polls to vote for him. That would be awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry about my internet, but it's out oh, of my hands. Fine. <laughs> that, that's fine. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. On our next episode, Rebecca Nagel joins us to discuss 
The Cherokee Nation Elizabeth Warren and the Pandora's Box she opened. To bring you these wonderful guests, uh, we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $2.50 a month and you get exclusive access to all our content. To become a patron, go to patreon.com historically. Until then, enjoy your week. Samba, samba, que misto de maracatu. Esse samba de preto veio, samba de preto do. Mas que nada, um samba como.